we turn in God's word to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 and verse 23. For the first verses of chapter 9, the writer's been talking about the patterns of worship in the temple day by day, week by week, and year by year. And continues, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary. There was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year, with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sin of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, 
He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up the habit of meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you have spoken in the past through your prophets and through your Son. Speak to us, we pray, through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Abraham Lincoln was President of the United States during the Civil War. It was a war in which the North, led by Lincoln, defeated the South. And the story is told of a time when, defeated, they brought prisoners from the South to Lincoln. And Lincoln's soldiers were eager for justice, for, for retribution, maybe for some blood. And as they brought these prisoners to Lincoln, he stood there and forgave them and sent them away. And Lincoln's soldiers were furious. They wanted something more than that. They wanted Lincoln to treat them harshly as they thought they deserved. 
And Lincoln chastised them and said, I have done what we agreed. We are rid of our enemies. I've made them our friends. A powerful story of courageous leadership but also a story that illustrates something to do with the cross. That through what God has done in Jesus Christ, we are changed from enemies into friends. Now that's got a posh word, and the posh word is atonement. It's a word that we would use in college. Paddy, you've got a lecture series coming up on atonement. What it means is very simple. Look at it this way. Atonement means at one meant. It means when we who are far away are brought near, when we are changed from enemies into friends, when we are at one with God. And here is a passage that speaks to us about this atonement, how we are brought to be at one with God. Now it seems to me as I read the New Testament, There is no one clear, concise explanation of how God makes us from enemies into friends. There is one clear, concise proclamation. The New Testament says categorically that through Jesus' death and his resurrection, we are brought close to God. We are redeemed, justified, saved. But when you ask, well, how does it happen? How is it that the death of one person 2,000 years ago has changed the world and can change me? How is it that it works? Well, the New Testament gives us a whole variety of answers to that question. It does so in a form, really, of images or pictures that were drawn from everyday life and experience. So let me give you just a few of them this, this evening to, to help us set the scene. The first, which we'll look at tonight in a bit more detail, is taken from the temple. They were used to sacrifices day after day, and Hebrews says that Jesus was like a sacrifice in the temple. Only a perfect, once-for-all, final sacrifice. A second image would be the marketplace. This was a culture where you could have slaves. Slaves might be because they were captured in war, they might be because they were in debt. And you go to the marketplace and buy slaves. Or you could go to the marketplace and set a slave free, maybe a cousin who's got into debt. You could redeem them, that was a word. You could pay the ransom to set them free. So when Jesus says, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is language of the marketplace in which the slave is set free. And it says somehow through Jesus' cross we are set free from sin. The third image is that of the battlefield. This idea of of victory that through Jesus' death sin and death and law have been conquered. Paul writes, at the very end 
of a great passage in 1 Corinthians 15 on resurrection. He says, The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it takes this image of the battlefield, that in the cross, Jesus has conquered sin and death and the law. I'll give you a fourth one. This is taken from the courtroom. It says that before God, we stand as guilty sinners. We deserve to be condemned. But somehow, through Jesus' death, we are declared innocent. We are justified. That's the language of the law court. We are put right with God. We are pronounced innocent. Our final one is taken from the family. This is the language of reconciliation. We are reconciled. We know the experience today of falling out with family and friends. Of relationships that have been broken and need to be restored and made whole again. So when Paul and other writers talk about we are reconciled with God, it's the language of the family. A broken relationship is made whole. And there's good reason why there's a whole variety. Because it gives us different perspectives into this one crucial act of God. And the different images the New Testament uses can show us different things about what God has done. They also show us different things about the problem that God has come to sort out. For example, an image of uh, the marketplace Sin is pictured as a force that holds us captive and that God has to set us free from that force. In language of the family, sin is broken relationships. And so it gives us different insight both into our human situation and how sin has affected us but also about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But I was quite careful in talking about those five images use the word somehow. Because the New Testament never explains all the details. It leaves us with images to ponder. It says it's like a sacrifice. It's like we who are guilty have been declared innocent by God. You see, what's happened is atonement is first and foremost an experience. The first Christians had experienced God changed their lives. They had been forgiven. They knew a person God they'd never known before. Their lives had been changed by God working in them and they tried to find language to understand what happened to them and explain it to other people. But first and foremost, atonement is an experience. It's something that God does within us and for us. My assumption tonight has been that actually this would be an experience that we share together. But if that's not the case, 
It's just the same thinking, well actually, I've never really had this experience. I've not known what it's really been for God to, to make me clean and forgive my sin. Well, talk tonight to Paddy or you or myself. Talk about what it means to have that experience. To know God change you and know God's forgiveness. Because whatever we say about atonement, it must be something that changes our lives. From enemies into friends. The second thing about atonement is it must shape the way that we live. If we are reconciled to God and we go home knowing there are people we won't talk to, God's salvation has not shaped our lives. It is not for for nothing that when Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Because what God has done for us should shape the way that we live our lives. That if God has forgiven us, we should be forgiving people. And thirdly then, and only thirdly, a term is something to be understood. This is why images and pictures and languages used try and help us explain what it means. Now, you know, I'm, I'm a theology tutor. My life is spent in understanding with students who want to know more about what it means. So, of course, I think it's important. But it's important in as much as it changes and shapes our lives. And sometimes, particularly within evangelical churches, we've got ourselves so caught up in the details sometimes of this, where what matters is that we're right. And our particular view is the one that holds sway. Sometimes we've been so concerned about our basis of faith and making sure that we think we're right that we forget that atonement must be something that first we experience and then that shapes the way we live our lives. And as we turn now to look at uh, Hebrews, the question I want to ask is quite simply, when we look at this passage, how would it shape the way we understand God and the way we actually go about living our lives? How will our understanding help us do these different things? I want tonight to say three things generally about this passage and then three things that I think should shape the way that we live and how we come to God. The first is this. This passage is based on the experience of regular temple worship. The writer of the Hebrews draws very strongly on this particular image. Jesus is like a sacrifice. But Jesus is the perfect, final sacrifice. And the writer, he or maybe she, when when he or she writes, they are fully aware of the temple system. 
they know it, they live it. And the people they're writing to know it and live it themselves. So as we read this passage, which is quite complicated, we realise there's lots of things we don't know about it. Because the writer assumes all sorts of things that the people that he was writing to knew. It was their daily life. We realise there's a gap here. We were talking about that earlier, weren't we? The gap of understanding. This isn't our experience. I mean, we know about sacrifice. We could tell stories about people who give up their lives in sacrifice. There's a famous story in in World War II, set in in Korea, where they were building, sorry, set in Burma, where they were building the Burmese railway, and and the Japanese were forcing the British prisoners of war to build the railway. Uh, And one day the prisoners of war go back to their camp, and they're standing in the line, and a Japanese guard insists that one shovel has not been put back in line. And wants to know who's got it. And no one says anything. And the Japanese guard becomes more and more irate, more furious, and holds up his rifle and says, I'll kill all of you. And then one man steps forward. And in his rage, the Japanese guard hits him so many times with his rifle that he kills him. And the prisoners go back to their barracks and they look at the shovels. And they're all there. No one has taken anyone. One man who had given his life as a sacrifice for the others. And the Bible knows it's unsigning a sacrifice. It, no sacrifice is something that we give to God and offer to God a sacrifice of praise. But when Hebrews talks here about sacrifice, it means something very specific. Day by day, in the temple, animals were sacrificed as part of the worship. They were offered as a sacrifice for the sin of the people. And that's the kind of sacrifice that the writer draws on. It's like a sacrifice in the temple, but this is one that is perfect and final, once for all. The second thing the writer draws on is experience not just of day-by-day worship, but the worship of one particular day of the year. It's called the Day of Atonement, it's still a very significant part of Jewish life. If you go to Israel on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the country shuts down. And on that day, at this time, the high priest would go into the, the Holy of Holies, a small room in the middle of the temple, and no one was allowed in there, and the high priest would go in one day a year on the Day of Atonement. He would go in wearing special robes, And on his robes were twelve stones. Each stone represented one of the tribes of Israel. So although he went in by himself, he took with him all the people. And there he made a sacrifice of a bull for his sins, and a sacrifice of a goat for the sins of the people. And would sprinkle the blood of the two animals around the room and on the altar. 
And the writer of Hebrews draws on this picture many times in this passage. We'll come to some of them. But of course, this is something that was part of their yearly ritual. This is something that they lived. It made perfect sense to say, Jesus is like a sacrifice. The ones we give every year. But the third thing we have to recognise about this passage is that while these sacrifices were woven into the fabric of Jewish life, this is what they did. The writers of the Hebrews have had a second experience. And because he has been changed by Jesus Christ, he looks back on the temple worship and realises it never actually worked. That we did this day in, day out, we did this year in, this year out, but actually we weren't changed by it. So there's something of a tension in the passage. It says that Jesus is like a sacrifice in the temple, but actually because of Jesus we now know these temples they don't work at all. And we need something different from God. So let's then ask our second question. How might these particular things, this ritual that happened day in, day out, year in, year out, how might it shape the way we think and live? Again, I want to say three things. The first is this. It pictures sin as like a stain that's got to be removed. Let me read to you Psalm 51, the very beginning. This is David speaking after probably the, the worst moment of his life in which he let God down. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Here's a language of sin as something that's got to be washed away. We've got to be made clean from it. As I said earlier, these different images suggest sin is, is, is in different ways. Some suggest sin is, is a power that God has to break. Some suggest that sin is like as it were, there's the scales and these are our, our guilt and our sins that have somehow to be weighed. This is a much more personal image of sin. It says sin is something that has deeply marred and stained our lives. That my sin and your sin have marred each other's lives. That we and I, we're not the people that God wanted us to be. Our lives be marred and blighted by what we have done and not done and what other people have done and not done. If we go back to our passage, there's a great therefore in verse in uh, chapter 10. Therefore, since we have confidence into the most holy place, holy place, this is the middle, the place where God was, let us draw near to God 
with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, this is the imagery of the blood, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. This is the picture of sin, as something that, that, that mars our life, that stains us. This makes us the people that God doesn't want us to be. And therefore it suggests that what God does for us in Jesus somehow must be to change us. If sin has stained our lives, God wants to change us. And change us deep down in our hearts and our lives. The image is here about being pure, about being perfect, having guilty conscience washed clean. Imagery that, that takes us back to the very beginning. The kind of people that God made us to be. We can sing that in Christ everything is accomplished. And that is true. But what God wants to accomplish is deep change in our lives. Where the stain and the effects of sin are taken away and washed clean. This is not some simple transaction. Jesus has died, we're set free, off we go. This is us coming to God and God making us clean deep, deep down. So maybe we have to ask ourselves, when we come to God, what is there in my life that actually God still needs to change? Where has this at one moment with God not really yet happened? A second thing that I think affects us is that sacrifice was always understood as a gift from God. There were plenty of examples of where people would make sacrifices to their gods to try and please them, or to try and appease them, or to ask for rain, or ask for sunshine. There's a great story in 1 Kings 18. Elijah's on the mountain with the prophets of Baal. And they have this competition. You know, who can ask their God for fire? And all day the prophets are dancing and asking and flogging themselves and cutting themselves, trying to appease their God. And I just simply praise, for your glory, God, do it. Sacrifice in the Old Testament was always understood as God's gift to the people. It wasn't a way they changed God's mind. It wasn't a way of making God happy. This was God's given way of dealing with sin. How did it work? Well, there's the mystery. Something about what went on in the Old Testament was, it was like a symbolic ritual. This would be the way in which they asked for God's forgiveness and God declared again that his people were forgiven. Let's go back to Hebrews for a moment. To the verse just before we started reading, to verse 22. 
In fact, it says, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What this doesn't mean is that somehow the blood is magic, that it can do things specially. It says here, nearly everything. And for those who were too poor to offer animals in sacrifice, they could take some grain instead. It didn't need blood. But this was the symbolic way in which God's forgiveness was declared. So the prophets, for example, say again and again, what I want from you is not sacrifice, but mercy. They didn't mean stop the sacrifices. They meant stop treating this as some magic act. Stop thinking that you can do what you like, treat people how you like, but it's alright because you give God a sacrifice. Sacrifices were the way in which a repentant people came together with a forgiving God. And this was God's gift. We must always recognise that when it comes to being put right with God, this is God's gift. There is nothing that we do to ask for it, nothing that we do to change God's mind. God is the one whose desire is to give us his forgiveness and turn us from enemies into friends. And finally, Sacrifice was a costly business. You had to bring your best animal to the temple for sacrifice. You couldn't bring the runts of the flock and say that this was good enough. You brought something that was pure, unblemished to the sacrifice, to the temple for sacrifice. This would have been your most expensive animal. But again, this is not to try and show God I've given you my best. This is a symbol of the cost of sacrifice. It says to us that sin is not a light matter. It's not something that we can say, well, it doesn't really matter. God will forgive us anyway. It shows us that sin matters deeply and sacrifice is costly. So again, if we go back in chapter 9, go back to verse 13. The blood of goats and bulls, these are what were given in the Day of Atonement, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are similarly unclean, sanctify them, so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. What's different here, of course, is that the unblemished sacrifice of Christ is not something that simply was there as in a goat or a bull. This was something that Christ worked towards. This was the perfect life that was lived in the midst of temptation in all sorts of other ways. 
In Christ we see as the one who fulfilled what God wanted in the beginning and could lead this unblemished life of obedience. Sacrifice was costly in the Old Testament and it's costly for for God today. It cost Jesus. We may talk about sacrifice in the way we know it today. His whole life of obedience to live for God so that when he gave himself he was unblemished and pure. Paul talks about the way that God gave his only son. It cost God everything. So if atonement is an experience for us that is costly, it costs God everything, we can expect living out atonement to be costly for us reconciliation, forgiveness. This will not be an easy path for us to tread. It will cost us to have our lives shaped by this sacrifice on the cross. Recall the Gospels for a minute. Jesus said you need to take up your cross and come and follow me. There's one sense in which Jesus died so we don't have to. But there's another sense in which Jesus died so that we will die with him. And that Jesus is raised so we will be raised with him. And this costly act of sacrifice is one that Jesus calls us to share in. That we might die with him to sin and be raised to life with him. That we are sharing, we are participating in what God has done for us. In a minute we're going to sing a song together. It talks about sacrifice. It talks about our response of brokenness. And let me just say again at the end what I said near the beginning. That that this is something that is to be our experience. This is something to shape and change our lives deep down. And if for the first time or for the umpteenth time, you want to talk to someone and pray with someone about what that might mean, then let's do so today.